0: Hey, this is YD from the Alevangelist Show, and you're listening to the Podcast 99 Internet Radio Network.
1: Hello.
2: Podcast of verbal narcissism for ugly journalists.
1: Hello. Can I talk to Mr. David? Jay Bowman? approach and identify. Hello? <laughs> but uh, other presidents have done this. So how
0: significant? That's right. Uh, I I think it's um, significant politically more so than operationally. I don't think, think we're going to uh, look at the next round of numbers and see it drop down to sixteen or fourteen or thirteen or anything like that, and it's not intended to. This is, uh, I would call, security theater. It's akin to what you see at the airports, where you know they make you take off your shoes and hop on one foot and do all kinds of stuff to try and make everyone feel as if some effort is being made to to secure the nation.
1: From the packed Northwest Studio of the Podcast Ninety Nine Network, located in beautiful downtown Silverdale, Washington. This is Plausibly Live, the Dave Bowman Show podcast. Now, here's your host, the submarine-qualified, well coffied rules-driven, elitist history buff, Dave Bowman. Weapons
0: on, you have permission of fire. After permission of fire, con. Weapons on. The president shall be commander-in-chief of the militia of the several states when called into actual service of the United States. Summer of 1787, 55 men gathering in the city of Philadelphia, tasked with fixing the government of the United States. Over the next four months, they debate, argue, discuss, refine the first document of its kind in all of history. An attempt to show that men can rule themselves by law. This is the story of those men in those times. This is Constitution Thursday, a time we set aside to read, discuss, study, debate, and learn about the Constitution, what it meant when it was written why it was written that way, what it means now, and how it affects our lives each and every day. Here's how you participate. Text machine, two zero nine five six five. dave Email dave at com. And on the web and social media, just look for Constitution Thursday. And plausibly live, The Dave Bowman Show. Well, happy Thursday, everybody. Hope your day is off to a good start. Mine's, uh, mine's been a little rough. I'm not sure what's going on here, but things are... Things are acting strangely, and I'm not sure why it always seems like that's the case though on a on a Thursday for some reason i just uh I gotta be honest with you it's uh, there are some days when this is really easy. It comes to me weeks in advance and i and I sit down and I write up the the notes that I do for a show, and then sometimes it's harder, and then in the middle of the night it clicks and it goes, Oh, duh." This is what we're, this is what we need to talk about. And it starts with yesterday's show. It starts with a discussion, a short discussion about what I said on yesterday's show. I had mentioned that there were two impediments to the president's plan of bringing forth the National Guard to guard the border. Number one, the biggest impediment, and it still is the biggest impediment, is the cost. You have to pay the troops. So that is going to be a significant investment, depending on how much we send out there. The second one I mentioned was Jerry Brown. And I still say that he is an impediment. He is a problem. He is a potential issue. However, comma, Jerry Brown cannot stop the deployment of the National Guard on the border by the President of the United States. So how did I learn that? Well, that's what we're going to cover today in Constitution Thursday, Article 2, Section 2 of the United States Constitution. The president shall be the commander-in-chief of the militia of the several states. When the Constitution was being debated, again, now let me say this before we get too rolling along here. Initially, at least, until we get through the, the dispassionate facts of what's going on. I will endeavor to keep my opinions to myself. Well, maybe if we have time later on, we'll get into some of those. But initially, we're just talking about not whether the policy that President Trump has activated here is right or wrong, simply the constitutional issues that get to play over that policy. In the 1790s, in the late 1780s, 1787, 1788, as the debate was raving, over the ratification of the Constitution, the Anti-Federalists felt very strongly that there was a potential danger in the Constitution, and that was in its ability to call forth for war and its implication that a standing army could be formed. The Constitution makes it clear that there can be an army, but it can only be funded for two years at a time. The Anti-Federalists of the day were, as I refer to them, the ideological grandparents of the libertarian movement today. They were extremely isolationist, and they believed and wrote quite extensively about the fact that they did not believe that there was any exigent danger to the United States whatsoever in 1787 there was no danger that could be foreseen. They felt that that was hyperbole. And despite the fact that there were British troops in forts on American territory, they didn't care. Their reaction to that was very simple. The martial spirit of Americans. The ability of our militias to defeat the greatest empire in the world should give any enemy cause to pause as the, if they were to think about invading the United States. You know, It kind of calls to mind uh, Irasuko Yamamoto, much later in the 1940s, would say, you can't invade America. He would say it in Japanese, of course, but you, you can't invade America because there's a rifle behind every blade of grass. The libertarian idea of that day, the anti-federalist idea of that day was... The militia was so good that it had just beaten England, nobody else is going to want to take it on. Nobody else, has the, nobody else has what we have. We're motivated by liberty, we're motivated by country. Our militias can beat any army in the world. Now, we talk a lot today about nationalism and American pride and that sort of thing, and we talk about it usually somewhat derisively, if it gets talked about at all. But this is a case where they really they really blew it up. People that you would not expect to have blown it up uh, really blew it up, but they did so mm, probably incorrectly. The truth of the matter was, from a military standpoint, that the militias, as militias, during the American Revolutionary War, were just a little bit shy of useless. We all know about Lexington and Concord. We know about Bunker Hill. We know about Boston. Fine. But in the actual conduct of the war, I mean, this is a little, try a little experiment with yourself. How many American Revolutionary War battles can you actually name? Just just try that. Just stop the tape for a minute. If you're listening on tape, and if you're listening live, you won't have time to do it. But just just jot down on a piece of paper, how many actual battles can I name from the American Revolutionary War? And then, once you have that list, think about the fact that that war lasted from 1775 to 1783. Eight years. Eight years that war went on, officially. Now, the last battle that the Americans took part in, that we took part in, was in 1781, October of 1781. But the war didn't end then. It went on for another two years. And many people expected that at any moment it was going to flare up again. So, as we, six years later then, are debating the Constitution, we're talking about this idea that these militias were so powerful that they could defeat England. Well, that didn't actually happen. What actually happened was the American military was transformed by the presence of one uh, Baron von Steuben into an actual army, as opposed to militias, and you had the French factor in there, and you had the French troops helping out as well. The American army, the Continental Army, was far more successful across the board than the, the American militias were. Now, that doesn't mean that the militias weren't important. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. They certainly contributed in mighty ways. But as an effective fighting force, it was pretty clear to Washington and everyone else that actually you know, was involved in the fighting that the militias were not up to snuff. And we would find that out again in a few years. The Anti-Federalists, however, crowed about this idea that the militias could take on anybody. And so there was no real reason to, to ratify the Constitution because we didn't need an army. We didn't. There are no exigent threats. There are no threats to the existence of the United States. Why are you trying to scare everybody into thinking there are with this boogeyman of some over-the-horizon threat that nobody can see? And nobody can even imagine. And in fact, uh, Madison would lighter write about future threats, talking about the fact that we don't know what the world is. The framers are often accused of not being you know, forward-looking, and they certainly were. Uh, Madison writes about the fact that, look, we don't know what the world's going to be in 10 years, 20 years, 100 years. We don't know. There may come threats that are so dangerous that the government will need certain powers in order to deflect those dangers. Eventually, his argument would win. As you know, the Constitution is ratified. In the 1790s, President Washington uh, and the Congress of the United States watch and take action as what they would refer to as hostile tribes, Native Americans, in the Northwest Territories, specifically Ohio, began to cause danger to settlers in that area, citizens in that area. And on three occasions, the president, Washington, called forth the militias and sent them out into Ohio to fight the hostile Indian tribes. It's not a review of that little combat thing. It's just to let you know that that happened. And then in 1794, President Washington himself, the only sitting president to ever do this, would lead the militias into... Potential combat, as he wrote at the head of the militia, is called out to squash the Whiskey Rebellion. Now, why did all this happen? Well, you'll note in the Constitution, Article 1, Section 8, Clause 15, that it is Congress that provides for the calling forth of the militia. And you may hear some jump on that today. So, you know, it's Congress that calls the militia, not the president. It's Congress that does this. It's Congress that funds them. The president is simply the commander in chief. Simply, (laughs) it's kind of a kind of a way to water that down, isn't it? The president's the one who's supposed to actually, you know, guide them in in their conduct of the combat. Now, the reason this was done was because there was a great fear that if they didn't have an executive decision maker for the for the militia, for the army, for the for the combat that was going on, that. Somehow or another, the war would end up being run by committee. And of course, this scared the crap out of the people that wrote the Constitution because they had just sort of been through that during the American Revolutionary War. And by the way, we would go through it again during the Civil War, and you could make an argument that we went through it in Vietnam and we're going through it today. They knew that if, unless there was one person making the decisions, it could get bogged down really quickly, and militarily, you wouldn't have time to respond to certain Certain events and certain exigencies, and they were concerned about that. That's why they set it up. Though the president will be the commander in chief, Congress calls it forth. So, how did we get to the point where the president decides to call them forth? Well, as has so often happened, so often happened in our history, Congress almost immediately, 1792, passed what was known as the Militia Act of 1792. Now, the Militia Act of 1792 was pretty simple. All it really did was outline how that happens. It gave the president the authority to do it. Whoops. Yes, we can do it, but we're passing that authority on to the executive. We're giving President Washington the ability to call forth the militia. We've talked about that on many occasions. I would trust President Washington even today if President, even if they propped up his, his you know, corpse in the White House, I think I would trust that. I'd trust President Washington's decisions more than I would trust many of the people that have been there over the last hundred years. Be that as it may, they trusted President Washington, and they assumed then that maybe the next guy as well. But, oddly enough, while they trusted him with it, in 1792, they only made the law applicable for two years. Because what it was going to happen in 1794. Anybody remember? Yeah, well, there you go. So, Washington has given that authority. By the way, this act conscripted every free-bodied, able, white man between the ages of 18 and 45 into the militia company. Later on, this would be expanded in 1862 uh, to include all races, between the ages of 18 and 54, that's really not important. But keep in mind that every citizen then was required to, every citizen that was so enrolled, within six months of his notification that you are in the militia, had to provide himself with a musket, bayonet, and belt, two spare flints, a cartridge box with 24 bullets, and a knapsack. And if by some chance you already had all of that, then you had to go get a powder horn, fourth of a pound of gunpowder, gun 20 rifle balls, a shooting pouch, and a knapsack. And oh, by the way, they made sure to exempt some people, guess who? That's right, congressmen were exempt from the Militia Act. They didn't have to do it. 1794, just before the act expires, the Whiskey Rebellion erupts. President Washington calls forth the militia, leads them out himself. The, the Whiskey Rebellion, and this isn't about that, goes away. And Congress says to itself, oh, this is about to expire. Maybe... <laughs> Perhaps we should uh, redo this. There was one particular requirement in the 1792 Act, however, that kind of stuck in their craw. And that was very simply that while the president could call forth the militia, he had to have a district court judge approve it. In other words, the district court judge had to say that the local officials were not able to handle whatever the exigency was. He would sign off on it, and that would give the president the authority then to call out the militia. Well, in 1795, they decided, why are we doing that? Why are we giving a judge, (laughs) a judge, the authority to decide who can handle a military issue? They're judges. By the way, did you notice that they did not exempt judges from the Militia Act? (laughs) Congress added again. So, in the 1795 Act, they dropped that. They said, "No, you no longer have to get that. Don't don't worry about that anymore." Okay, because that's uh that's a problem, and we don't we don't we don't want to do that. Okay, so there you go, and that's how things kind of sat for about a decade, decade or so, and then things began to get mm, tense. With Great Britain in May of 1811, there was an incident off the coast of North Carolina. A British ship called the HMS Little Belt, which was a sloop of war, which is a relatively small ship. It had 20 guns, happened to cross the, the USS President, which was a 44 gun frigate. Now, if you know anything about the Navy. Uh, the six frigates the president was one of those she was a kind of a sister ship to the constitution and the constellation but she was uh she was out there off north carolina a few days before that the uss chesapeake and the hms leopard had gotten into a fight and there was a lot of fracas over that the leopard had seized some american sailors one of them from maine and put them on trial for desertion from the british navy impressed them into the to the English Navy. Well, on this night, in May of 1811, not really a fair fight. The Chesapeake coming across the, I'm sorry, the president coming across the Little Belt. And the British ship is beaten. Beaten very badly. And eventually, uh, well, (laughs) the sloop had no chance of winning. The Little Belt had no chance. After 15 minutes, uh, the, the battle was over. The president, the USS president, not the president, the president uh, left. The little belt had nine dead, 23 injured. Two of them later died. The sloop was badly damaged. Uh, and look, we're sorry. The uh, The British captain asked why he had been attacked. And the president's uh, lieutenant said, well, it was because you provoked it. Well, no, we didn't. Little Belt went on to Halifax, and the British were really mad about this. The British were just really, really upset about this little incident. And across the country, boom, 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 boom war drums started beating. And there was a belief in the United States. So we, we think of the War of 1812 in quaint terms. I mean, really, what, what does the War of 1812 mean to us today? What, what what do we think about? We think about uh, Constitution Guerriere. We think about the Battle of New Orleans in 1814. We took a little trip down to Mississippi, to the Mississippi, whatever the words are to Johnny Horton's song. We think about the burning of the White House, and we think about the Star Spangled Banner. Those are really the only things we know about that war. But we we never even talk about how we got into that war. Well the way we got into that war was you have incidents like this little belt incident. You have the, the British impressing uh, American citizens. You have the fight between uh, the, the, the Gurrier and uh, the, uh, the, the Chesapeake. And you have all these, the leopard and you, you got all these things going on. And the war drums are beating boom, 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 boom. And you have this martial spirit. Our militias can beat anybody going on in the background. And so, what were then named, it's odd now because I know this term gets thrown around a lot, but what were then named the Warhawks, led by Henry Clay, the Speaker of the House at the time, really started agitating for war with England. And their idea was not only would we get a war with England, but we're so good we're gonna march into Canada and we're gonna annex Canada. This is the idea behind the behind the war of eighteen twelve. The president Mr. Madison, is not uh, necessarily on board with this, but the pressure from the Warhawks and the fact that the Warhawks are so uh, powerful in Congress continues to build. And there continue to be impressions and there continue to be conflicts and confrontations between the British Navy and the American naval forces, as, as well as merchant forces. And eventually it builds to the point where Congress pushes through a declaration of war against Great Britain. And, of course, Madison signs it and says, okay, let's, let's do it. <clears throat> let's go fight them. Let's go do it again. And his first act after this is to call forth the militias. Da-da, da-da, da-da. Let's go, boys. Hop to it, Minutemen. We've got, we've got a job to do. And remember that martial spirit of the American militias that was so powerful that the, the, the anti-federalists were so proud of? And I keep telling you the anti federalists are the ideological grandparents of the libertarian movement of today. Do you know what their response was? Hell no, we're not doing that. We're not going we're not invading Canada. What are you what are you crazy? We're not doing that. The British, of course, didn't get that message. The British got the message of we declared war on you. Okay. So they sent over a bunch of troops. The troops started basically rampaging through the through the mid-Atlantic states, including burning our Capitol to the ground, our White House to the ground, where Dolly Madison rolls up the portrait of of Gilbert Stewart's uh, Washington portrait and puts it under her petticoat and gets out of of town, and the White House gets burned to the ground. And the, the problem is because the American militias, the governors of those states, particularly Massachusetts, Connecticut, Pennsylvania, never did get their militia into the fight, and of course, you know who, Rhode Island, right there in the thick of this whole thing, just absolutely refused to get involved. They didn't want any part of it. They were not going to invade Canada. And they made it clear to the to the president that the only way he could have their militias is if, number one, they had to stay in the United States, and, and in many cases, they got to stay in our state. They're not going outside of our state. And number two, they're under our command, not yours. You're not putting U.S. Army people in charge of this. We're in charge, not them. There's nothing in the Constitution that lets you be in charge of this. So, needless to say, the, American, the, the second American Revolutionary War, as it's sometimes referred to, the War of 1812, does not go well for us. We, we celebrate it because, in the end, we think we won. It's kind of funny. When I was in the Navy, of course, we have the, the Cracker Jack uniforms and it has the two stars on the back flap. You ever seen those? And any time a British tar would ask us, what are those two stars for, mate? Which was not an English accent. Our answer was to be, uh, that's one star for each time we kicked your ass and there's room for a lot more. But we didn't really, you know, I mean, look, I'm a historian, I'm an American, but I like to take things as they are. The War of 1812 did not go well for us. We won the most significant battles of it at Baltimore, Fort McHenry, and we won at New Orleans, which was fought, of course, two weeks after the war actually ended. In both of those cases, they were defensive actions, and the militias that were involved were not actually required to do anything other than hold a line behind heavy fortifications. There they did well. Everywhere else, they sucked. They did terribly. And this created a major league problem. This created, when this war was over, Madison himself was very upset. If the authority of the United States to call into service and command of the militia, for the public defense can be thus frustrated, even a state of, even in a state of declared war, which it was, and of course under apprehensions of invasion preceding war, they are not one nation for the purposes most of all requiring it. And that the public safety may have no other resource in these large and permanent military establishments which are forbidden by the principles of our free government. Madison's complaint was, dudes, if you can say no, we're going to have to have a standing army because there's no other way to do it. If you can say no, when, when Congress has said yes, and you can say no, and I have the authority under the Militia Act of 1795 to call them forward, we're screwed. This idea that we don't want a a big government's kind of gone away. I mean, what are we supposed to do? And, of course, ultimately, this would lead to some Supreme Court cases. This would lead to some ideas. This would lead to mm, a good deal of challenges. One of the governors involved, uh, Caleb Strong, was one of the governors. Uh, asked several questions. He raised two questions, actually, that were very pertinent. Does the president have the authority to determine for himself when to call for the militia? And does the the Militia Act require the president to command the militia, or can they be lawfully commanded by other officers of the United States Army? The the response was, was kind of interesting, because he actually asked a Supreme Court judge on the massachusetts supreme court for help what what do you think what, what do you what do you think and, and the answer of course that the that he got from the supreme court of massachusetts was well no it's the 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 ability to call out the militia was vested in the commanders in chiefs of the militias which would be you mr governor said the state judge of course it's you 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 are great mr governor you are wonderful of course you're right mr governor he explained the danger of granting the federal government the right to choose when to call forth the militia. If Congress or the president has the right, they could then turn the military against the intentions of the people without any constitutional remedy. Oh, this is and this is something you need to keep in mind. This was this was an idea expressed in in, in, in 1812, but really even into the 1990s. Parsons wrote that a different construction to the Constitution, giving Congress the right to determine when those special cases exist and subjecting them to the command of the President would place the militia in effect at the will of Congress and producing a military consolidation of the states with no constitutional remedy. So this is what had happened. I mean, this is is where we were. This judge explains all this and then he says, but, (laughs) but... If you read the 1795 Militia Act, passed by Congress, what does it say? Yes, the President has the authority to judge for himself when to call forth the militia. On the second question, he was a little bit more firm. He did not believe that the militia could be placed under the command of the U.S. Army. And Boy, would this cause some issues because of the fact that, once again, the militia did not perform well during the War of 1812. Defensively, on, on a couple of occasions, they were brilliant. New Orleans, McHenry, but as a general rule, they were terrible. And this started to really cause some concern. And this really started to boil over. And as you can probably guess, it meant that eventually the Supreme Court was going to have to get involved with this, because they were going to have to decide those Essentially those two questions And of course They would Stay with us We've got to take a break It's Constitution Thursday On Plausibly Live The Dave Bowman Show Right here on the Podcast 99 Internet Radio Network Back right after this
1: Science Underground With your host, Anissa Ramirez. This week, the nose. How it helps you breathe and smell and also enjoy food. I'm Anissa Ramirez, and this is Science Underground. Try this simple experiment. Hold your nose and then put a jelly bean in your mouth and chew. Chances are you can't taste it. You can taste the sweet part, but you can't taste the flavors of the jelly bean. However, when you let go of your nose, the flavors will become obvious again. That's because your nose is key to tasting things. So what's going on? Well, odors are made of different molecules. The nose is a sensor for these molecules. Think of the inside of your nose as a thousand different keyholes, each one accepting a different type of key. Only one type of molecule can fit into one of these keyholes, and a combination of molecules makes a certain odor. These different combinations of molecules help us detect if the odor is perfume, pastry, or pizza. Your nose is important to determining taste. You see, your tongue has five basic tastes. Sweet, salty, sour, bitter. And a new one called umami, which is a savory taste which is found in cheeses and meats and soy sauce. And there's another one, a sixth taste, that is for fat. This last one is still under debate. Whatever the case, your tongue senses a handful of tastes. But that's nothing because your nose senses 1,200 flavors. So how does your nose help you taste food? Well, flavors are detected when they travel through the front of your nose, through the nostrils, but also from the back of your nose when the flavors travel from the back of your mouth up into the oral cavity now we've all experienced the inability to taste food when we have a cold or our noses are congested this eventually clears up but this inability to taste food is a problem that doesn't clear up for the elderly we lose our sense of taste as we get older the sensors in our noses work less effectively with time the good news is that researchers are putting their noses to the grindstone as they nose around for ways to keep food enjoyable and our noses running I'm Anissa Ramirez, and this was...
2: About 70% of U.S. adults age 65 or older have high blood pressure, and only about half have it under control. Blood pressure medicine can protect the heart, brain, and kidneys, but many people aren't taking it as directed. This means they may skip doses or stop taking it altogether. To help patients, healthcare systems can involve the entire healthcare team to ensure patients are taking medicine as directed. Simplify blood pressure treatment by prescribing 90-day refills and combination medicines. Coordinate pill refills and prescribe generic medicines. Encourage the use of home blood pressure monitors and address financial barriers such as high copays and deductibles. Patients follow your healthcare team's instructions on how much medicine to take, how often, and how long to take it. Ask questions about how to correctly take your medicines and why you need them. Use weekly pill boxes or a reminder system to keep track of when to take medicine. To learn more, visit cdc.gov slash vital signs. Hey there, Rodbo here from the Ale Evangelist Show, and you're listening to the Podcast 99 Radio Network.
0: Hey, welcome back. It is me, Dave. It's Constitution Thursday here on Plausibly Live. The Dave Bowman Show on the Podcast 99 Internet Radio Network. Welcome wherever you are listening. Glad to have you with us today. From the Palatial Podcast 99 Northwest studios, Silverdale, Washington. So when we left you, there was a good deal of debate after the end of the War of 1812, as to whether or not the president had the authority and whether or not the militia could be placed under the authority of the United States Army. Now, again, we're leading to a discussion, as much as we can get into, of President Trump's issuing today an executive order activating the National Guard to guard the border with Mexico. There's a lot of discussion as to, can he do that? Yes, he can. Should he do that? That's a different story. In 1827, the court finally resolved this issue as to whether or not constitutionally, whether or not the Militia Act of 1795 was essentially constitutional or not. A man by the name of Mott, who lived in the early part of the the nation's existence, did not want to serve in the militia. And in 1796, he had been called up to the militia and refused to go. Remember that part about every able-bodied man between 18 and 54, you had to have a gun, you had to get a gun, you had to do all this stuff. He said no. What his reasons were, what his, all of that's you know, not germane to the conversation. He was, of course, charged with violation of the act, and was forced to pay a $96 fine. Now, to you today, $96 might not sound like all that big of a fine, but in, in the early part of our nation's history, a a, a fine of that nature was extraordinarily big. It basically bankrupted him and put him in the poorhouse, and he spent years fighting this on a constitutional basis. And eventually his case finally made it to the United States Supreme Court, where the Supreme Court took a look at the case They factored into this the War of 1812. They considered some of the issues that they had been having with the militia system and everything that was going on. And they eventually decided the case based on the facts at hand. And they decided that, essentially, if we're going to have a nation, Mr. Madison was correct. If the states and individuals can refuse this how do we make this work? The only other way to do this then is to, to form a standing army. And we don't want to do that. That's against our principles. The Supreme court unanimously held therefore that the president, the president as authorized by Congress had the sole authority to determine when the militia should be called out. However, they were cautious Justice Story wrote, A free people are naturally jealous of the exercise of military power, and the power to call the militia into actual service is certainly to be one of no ordinary magnitude. I'm I'm flashing on Kentucky Fried Movie. No ordinary magnitude. But it is a power which can be executed without a correspondent responsibility. It is not a power that can be executed without a correspondent responsibility. It is, in its terms, a limited power confined to the cases of actual invasion or imminent danger of invasion. The Supreme Court looked at whether the, who has the power to determine whether the, this exigency is a written. Sorry, arisen, not a written. The court concluded that that authority, again, lies exclusively exclusively with the president and cannot be questioned by individual officers. We are all of the opinion that the authority to decide whether the exigency has arisen belongs exclusively to the president. And that his decision is conclusive upon all other persons. We think that this construction necessarily results from the nature of the power itself and from the manifest object contemplated by the act of Congress. The power itself is to be exercised upon sudden emergencies, upon great occasions of state, and under circumstances which may be vital to the existence of the Union. A prompt and unhesitating obedience to orders is indispensable to the complete attainment of the object, the service is a military service, and the command of a military nature, and in such cases, every delay and every obstacle to an efficient and immediate compliance necessarily tend to jeopardize the public interests. And with that came the idea that Congress had essentially given the President of the United States the authority to decide when the exigency exists and when to call forth the militia. And that is what we operate under even today. Now, the militia system has obviously changed. It had to. Why? Well, you go back to what Madison said. The militias were always problematic. In 1862, President Lincoln, then President Lincoln, called for the militias to come forth to fight the Civil War, to fight the insurrection. I mean, this, if this isn't an exigency, what is? Nearly every state dragged their feet. Some states absolutely refused to send their militia. And the government was forced to operate under a different system. They began to have what they called the United States volunteers, which were not the militias of the state. You could have a volunteer infantry, a volunteer cavalry, volunteer whatever. Artillery units, and these were units that were formed in the states. The states they volunteered; they were not the states' militia, and they became very famous units. Many the twentieth Maine of Gettysburg face, uh, fame is a is a volunteer unit, and they actually had their own command structure. And you can see this if you go and you read Civil War histories and stuff like that. Sometimes you'll see uh, major. Well, let me give you let me give you a great example: uh, Colonel. Ulysses S. Grant, USV, United States Volunteers. General, Brigadier General Samuel Bowman, USV, United States Volunteers. And it was possible under this system to hold a commission in the United States Army and in the volunteers, which would be given by your state governor. And so you would have Colonel Grant, Colonel Ulysses S. Grant, and Brigadier General Ulysses S. Grant at the same time. And one of the rewards that Congress would later give out at the end of the war was they would give USV officers who had performed very well commissions in the United States Army. And that was was a reward for their performance as volunteers. The militia, virtually non-existent during the Civil War. After the end of the Civil War, we began to... Uh, manifest destiny, and we began to grow, and we find ourselves in, in, in other conflicts. And by 1903, it is clear that the militia is just a disaster. It's not working. In fact, in the 1898, late 1988s, during the Spanish-American War, once again, we send U.S. volunteers as opposed to militias. We get, People say, well, <laughs> my governor says no to the militia, so I'm going to go join a volunteer regiment. And off you go, Teddy Roosevelt, Colonel, United States Volunteers. The militia system is so foobard that it is the United States feels compelled to redo the whole thing. And, of course, in 1903, the Militia Act of 1903, uh, the Dick Act, named for Charles Dick, essentially re- revamps the entire militia system. It does away with militias. And replaces them with the National Guard. And the National Guard is also a two-tiered system. Yes, it is your militia. It is your state militia. But everyone that's in the militia, everyone that's in the state militia, is also in the United States Army. So no more of this argument about who's, uh, you know, who's what. Whether or not they can be placed under command of this or that or whatever. Even that doesn't solve the whole issue. In 1916, Pancho Villa is raiding along the, the Mexican-American border, and President Wilson gets upset about this, and he sends Black Jack Pershing and the National Guard down to chase him down. And many of the National Guard troops stop at the border. Nope, we're here to defend the United States, but we're not invading another country. We're not doing that. Some of the troops, specifically U.S. Army troops, active duty troops, went, went on with him, but many of the militia troops refused to. And, of course, then you get into World War I, where the National Guard performs very well, extraordinarily well. For whatever reason, they're, they're now being trained up to standard. They're being equipped up to standard because they've gotten federal money. The, the National Guard, the reserve component, the militia, performs very well during the First World War, very well during the Second World War. And this is the system that we have today. Into the 1980s, if you recall, the 1980s were a a time frame of great concern about conflicts, particularly low-level conflicts in Central America. And the president at that time, Ronald Reagan, not very loudly, not very, not with a great deal of fanfare, was calling up National Guard units to send them to Nicaragua Guatemala and those areas ostensibly to train that was the that was the official mission they were going there to train but of course almost nobody believed that most people believed that we were getting involved with another Vietnam which is where we started by sending you know advisors and people to train the vietnamese and and then fight alongside the vietnamese and eventually we just took over the whole war and said you stand over there we'll do this and that was really the fear that that was going to happen in areas like Nicaragua Guatemala Honduras. And several governors in the 1980s said, no, we're not sending our, you can have our troops, but you can't take them out of the United States because there's no declaration of war. And again, this ended up with Congress getting snitty about it. And Congress, now this is kind of interesting to me because if you think about it, it was it was a divided Congress, passes what's known as the Montgomery Act. The Montgomery Act says... That not only can the president call for, determine the exigency, call forth a militia, but then he can, the National Guard, but then he can send them wherever he wants. Under the, under the War Powers Act, he doesn't have to answer the state governors anymore. And, of course, the court upholds this in a couple of lawsuits, one of which involved Michael Dukakis, of all people, the governor of Massachusetts in 1988, sued under that, tried to get the Montgomery Act overturned, and, and failed. And then we go you know, into the Gulf Wars, the war against terror, and now here we are today. The President of the United States, Donald Trump, has, like both of his predecessors, President Bush and President Obama, directed the National Guard, and we don't know which units yet, to guard the United States borders or do something. Now, there is some question as to what they're going to do is he going are they going to simply support the border patrol as they have done in the past under president bush and president obama are they just going to stand there as they did under governor perry and hand out water are they just being there in a support mode or as the president has said we're going to do something militarily that's what the man said right
2: Things military Until we can have a wall and proper security, we're going to be guarding our border with the military.
0: And that raises all kinds of of issues and questions. How are they going to do this? Which units are going to do this? Can the governors object? Well, they can object politically, I guess, uh, and this is what I got wrong yesterday. I, I was of the opinion yesterday, 24 hours ago, as I sat here, that the the governor of California, Jerry Brown, could in fact... Refuse to do so, but he cannot. I don't know if he knows that. I'm assuming his legal team is savvy enough to have read the same history of I've, I've read, and I'm assuming they know that legally they don't have a leg to stand on, that the Supreme Court has already made this decision at least twice. That doesn't mean they won't try. Doesn't mean they won't sue the government. Doesn't mean they won't go to the Ninth Circuit and find a judge that says, Oh, you're constitutional... They'll go back to 1812. They'll go back to their, they'll quote, they'll quote the justice story. Or they'll go back and, and quote the, the, the judge from uh, from Massachusetts. Who knows what they'll, who knows what they'll pull out of this. The argument is just starting, but it, we, we need to understand that it's totally and completely a political argument. Militarily, functionally, constitutionally, President Trump, whether you agree with the policy or not, is irrelevant. It has been established, it has been argued, it has been determined. It has been allowed by Congress that the President of the United States decides what the exigency is and what the military response to that is, including calling forth the militia, now the National Guard, to deal with the exigency given those facts now we're into the political arguments as to whether or not a is there an exigency okay that's the first question that that has to be determined cross border crossings based on the number of arrests at the border have been declining now i got to be honest with you even back in 2007 2008 when i first started doing this we this number was being thrown around 20 million illegal immigrants 20 million and i kept i kept saying that cannot be right and we started running the numbers and i think we we came up with a number to get the number that they were throwing out there at the time the number of people that had to be crossing the border every day was so massive that it would just it would look like a blob coming across the border and that wasn't happening We then found out that half of those 20 million number, half of that 20 million number, were people that were in the United States on visas that had expired. So in other words, the United States government let in somewhere between eight and nine million people and then just didn't send them home, didn't make them go home when their visa expired. Oddly enough, I knew one of those people and I was a little surprised. I was, wait, you're here on an unexpired visa. How how does that happen? I can't even speed without getting caught. And you can stay in the United States forever. That's something not right there. At any rate. So that made the number somewhere between eight and 11 million back in 2008 of actual illegal immigrants that had snuck somehow or another across the border, whether that was the border with Mexico or at the time had come in on ships from China. Or possibly even walked across the Canadian border. Who knows? Now we're told that that number has significantly declined. President Obama himself. Now again, this is not a this is not a I like that guy, I don't like that guy. President Obama's actions on behalf of controlling immigration are certainly arguable, but one of the things that he took credit for was a decrease in the number of people coming across the border unaccounted for. And we're told that in the year that Trump has been president, those numbers have dropped even further. Something around 50,000 now, I guess, is the number I saw this morning. That's the number of arrests. Does that constitute an exigent circumstance? That's the question, politically, that's going to have to be asked. Is it an exigent circumstance that essentially means that we need to call out the army? The National Guard is the army, folks. Again, you need to understand, yes, it's the militia, but it's also the army. They they made it dual so that they would do away with those, those arguments. And are we, the American people, naturally jealous of that exercise of that power? And is this a decision to be made not one of the ordinary magnitude? And what is the responsibility for it? It's confined to a case of actual invasion or imminent danger of invasion. And therein lies the real political question in all of this, doesn't it? Whether you're pro-Trump, anti-Trump, never-Trump, whether you're a leftist, a rightist, a Democrat, Republican, Libertarian, Prohibitionist, Communist, Libertarian, it doesn't matter. The argument is political. What? Is this an exigent circumstance or not? Is this an invasion or a threat of an invasion or not? And that's really what it comes down to. The president has the authority to call forth the the militia, the national guard. He has the authority to command them to do military things. What those military things on the border are, I do not know. I do not know what he means when he says we will do military things on the border to me. And I am, a, I am a veteran, as you well know. To me, military things means blowing things up and breaking things and killing people. That's what it means to me. Are we, in fact, willing to do that on the border today? That's a political question. Is this really an invasion? That's the second question. Is a thousand... Hondurans, Guatemalans and whatever else they could wrap up down there walking across our border an invasion. Now I get it. some people are going to say, well of course it's an invasion Dave these people are coming here to take over our country a thousand of them and it's not militarily it's they're not they're not representing any kind of exigent threat in the sense of they're coming here to kill us and enslave us. And deprive us of our liberties? Are they? I've heard all the arguments about illegal immigration. I, I am not a. I am not in favor of illegal immigration. The primary reason I'm not in favor of it is because it's not fair. It's not. It people who came here, who worked their butts off, who who did all the right things to get here the right way, are basically being told, "Screw you. We'll just do this." by people who are doing that, who, who, who come in illegally. I believe that immigration is one of the greatest strengths of this country, and always has been, but it, it requires assimilation. It does require assimilation. If you're coming to the United States to make the United States whatever third world crap hole you came from, that is not helpful. That is not what we need to be doing. Be that as it may, we need to consider, and our Congress people should be arguing today, should be debating today, this should be the debate in Congress today. Is this an exigency? Is this something so important, an actual invasion, imminent danger of invasion, that the American people should be willing to use the exercise of military power? in a a way that is of no ordinary magnitude. That's the decision each and every one of us has to make because we got to know whether we're going to support the president in his actions or not. If you do, that's your decision. If you don't, that's your decision. I'm not trying to persuade you one way or the other. But I do tell you that the president does have the authority to do this. So if you think that the president does not have the authority to do this, you are wrong. I was wrong yesterday. He does, in fact, have the authority to do so. And the governors do not have the authority to say no. They could say no, and they could make great grandstand proclamations and press conferences, and they could do all kinds of things, and no doubt there will be one or two National Guard troopers that make the news because they refuse it, but they do not have the authority to do so. The political questions aren't quite as clear, are they? And each of us will have to decide for ourselves. i got to get going. Please, take the time right now. Tell the people that matter in your life you love them very much. You would miss them if they weren't there. So don't pass up those opportunities. You don't want to have that regret. Plausibly Live, I'm Dave Bowman. This is the Dave Bowman Show and podcast on the Podcast 99 Internet Radio Network. Have a great rest of your Thursday, everybody. We'll see you tomorrow at 10 a.m. Pacific time for the Dave Bowman Show right here on Podcast 99. Thank yeah. you.
1: Possibly Live is a Slippery Fish entertainment production for the Podcast 99 Network. To contact Dave directly, call or text area code 209-565-DAVE. That's 209-565-3283. The email address is dave at Show.com. For more information or to hear past shows, go to www.possiblylive.com. Hey,
0: I'm going to go do something productive. I'm going to go watch television. Hey, this is YD from the Alevangelist Show, and you're listening to the Podcast 99 Internet Radio.